First, though, we have been talking to local business owners, mainly about crime. But today we're shifting focus a little bit and talking to a a Vancouver restaurant owner who has made the decision after more than 10 years at this particular location to close the doors. Emil Malik joins me on the line now. Emil, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, you have decided to close down one of your locations, the Bellagio Cafe, the one that is located at Canada Place. Why did you make that decision? Well, because, you know, we've been there 10 years. We've had a good eight and a half years run. We, now we don't have cruise ships. We don't have conventions. We don't have tourists coming. And the American market is dried up because we, you know, 50% of our clients used to be Americans. Uh, it's dead. I mean, I was taking a day from May onward till end of September, an average of twenty thousand dollars a day. It went down to eighty to two hundred bucks, and on the weekend maybe five hundred. So I was losing between two to two and a half thousand dollars a day. This package helping us from Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, and we lasted a year and a half. If it wasn't for the stimulus package, you know, the subsidy for the rent and the wages, would have been out of business in three months. So, you know, sometimes now where, what's happening with the cruise ships? We don't know. I think it's going to be gone for three years from what I'm hearing. It's going to go to Seattle. What, what's happening with the conventions? We don't know. I mean, it's going to take a couple of years to get back. We have the best convention, the best run convention in the world. But, you know, Corona is, is, is destroyed everything. And, you know, the hotels, what's going to happen there? I mean, tourists are not coming. And, you know, people think Corona is finished. I personally think we haven't even started yet. Hmm. You watch what's going to happen this fall. Well, you mentioned, we'll get to a lot a lot there, but you mentioned cruise ships, and we've been talking about the cruise ship industry and about the, uh, the congressman in Alaska, and now there are two different pieces of legislation being put forward to make it permanent that cruise ships can bypass Canada. Uh, others are saying, at least for 2022 and 2023, there are already cruise companies that are taking bookings that involve, that are, are in Vancouver. Uh, are you, do, you, do you have any hope that, it, that there might be some some reprieve, at least with cruise ships coming back? And how much of that was your business dependent on? It wasn't just the dependence on cruise ships. The cruise ship brought a lot of energy around the area. You know, it was the energy at 50% in the summer, dependent on cruise ships, at least. You know, because they, they didn't come to go on the cruise. They would come and stay a couple of days in Vancouver. Some of them would come after the cruise and stay another couple of days. They were good spenders. You know, they were... No problem with spending the money. And really, all that is gone. And now we are just got the local community. And there's too many restaurants to, 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 to cope with the local community. I mean, I feel so sorry for all the restaurant owners right now. We have survived just for one reason. The, the stimulus packages on rent subsidies and on wages. If it wasn't for that, and when that stops, if Corona carries on, 50% of restaurants in Vancouver will go belly up. There's no doubt about it. I've been in the business 40 years. My other restaurant in Homeby has been there 22 years. We will go belly up if there is no subsidies. Uh, as it stands now, though, the subsidy, depending on which one you're, you're looking at, the, the Canada Emergency Rent subsidy was extended, but it is set to expire on October 23rd. Uh, so are you suggesting if that does happen, we're going to see a lot of restaurants go out of business? 50% minimum. All your mama and papa can't afford to pay this when there is no... I mean, 
you brought, they just brought in the restaurant. Now we have to show a vaccine passport. Well, we're down 50% already. Lots of people are not bothered coming. So, I mean, what do I do? I mean, <laughs> how are we going to pay rent of $25,000, dollars a month if we're only taking five, $600 a day? Have you, you, had, have you had to lay off staff? Of course. How, how many people? Lay off staff. I've laid off about 45 people at the convention. And sometimes when we are busy, like a whole day, we take $22,000, we'd have 30 people. We have lots of part-timers, you know, just in one day. When you take $22,000 a day, you need the manpower, you know. So I've laid a lot of people. I've laid a lot of people in my other location in Homby, which has been there 22 years, Bellagio, you know. So really and truly, it's out of our hand, but there's no point complaining. We have to face facts. And really and truly, until now, I used to vote conservative. But because Justin Trudeau has helped us, I'm going to vote liberal because without him, we'd have been in, we'd have been gone. Right. Even though at this point, even if uh, there is uh, another liberal government, there's no guarantee that those subsidies are going to continue. But he has already said he's going to help people till March. That's a break till we get to the summer. He's already said that. So really and truly, the other, the conservatives don't want to do any subsidies. They want to do some funny schemes. If you take new people on, that's fine. But, you know, I need to survive. How am I going to take people on if I don't survive? And the other thing we have a problem with, we cannot get staff. The provincial government has got to withdraw, giving staff $2,000 a month for staying on their butt at home and feeling sorry for themselves. That's, that's not the provincial staff. government, though. That's, that's a federal government subsidy. The federal, sorry, my mistake, the federal. I mean, we can't get people. We cannot get people to work. This is a disaster. You know, in convention, I had to get people begging them to come, and they wanted 20 bucks an hour. A girl who's never been a waitress. I got to charge, what, $40 for a, for a hamburger to pay 20 bucks an hour? You see, wages went up, rent went up, property taxes went up, and now all the food went up by 25%. What do we do? We've got to charge it. So you want a hamburger, 40 bucks. Uh, you mentioned, I, I get what you're saying, and, and I'm, I'm, I get your point. I don't imagine there are too many people who would be going out to eat to, and paying for a $40 hamburger. Uh, but what about the other location? So you've been able, though, to keep the Hornby Street location open. I've been there 22 years. And I have a very understanding landlord. So, you know, they helped us. And this has been like my life, 22 years. My wife loves it. She runs it. So I'm going to keep opening, hoping to break even. You know, and hoping we get a break and this damn corona goes away. <laughs> we need the corona to go away, really. I mean, this has been a business 22 years I've been there. And now the business is breaking even, starting to do better in the past two, three weeks. And bang, we got this damn vaccine passport and it's gone down again. Do you think people you know, are, are not coming in because either they're not vaccinated or they don't want the hassle or, or they have concerns about privacy or, the, or for whatever reason about the passport? I think not vaccinated and also privacy. People, I know, people are funny. They don't want to show you. you know, they don't want to show things on the phone. I don't know. You know, and they don't want to argue. And my staff yesterday, we had a problem. The guy said, no, I'm going to eat. And I don't have I left my phone somewhere else. And, you know, you spend 15 minutes arguing you know, with the people, and it's just not good atmosphere for the staff. 
It's not good atmosphere. We are continuing our conversation about increased crime. Several business owners, I know in various places in Metro Vancouver, Lower Mainland, have talked about what appears to be an increase in property crime, general feelings of not safe in some areas. And in Vancouver, those particular areas include the Granville Mall in the downtown core, as well as the West End. Well, earlier today, police announced they were going to be redeploying some officers to address that. So we wanted to get some reaction. Joining us now is Spencer Chandra Herbert. He is the New Democrat MLA for Vancouver West End. Thank you so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Jill. Uh, Earlier today, the Vancouver Police Department announced the department's going to increase the number of patrols specifically to Granville Street as well as the West End, saying they're going to be deploying officers on foot and by bicycle to increase that street level police presence. What are your thoughts on that? I'd say finally, uh, we got a bit of an increase last year um, to see another increase, I think, finally responds to community concerns. Um, but folks wanted the on the ground presence, not to just have cars driving through, um, but to have folks who get to know each other, get to know the neighborhood, get to know the folks who are either living on the streets, uh, the shop owners, the neighbors, uh, because our community policing center uh, does really well and, and has managed to deal with some of the hardest cases um, we've seen on the streets. So, yeah, about time, I'm, I'm glad to hear that they, they, they've been hearing our concerns. What are you hearing from people? We've been talking to business owners on this program who've, who've had their windows smashed, saying that others have been hit upwards of five times having their front windows smashed. What are you hearing from people in the West End about crime? Uh, you know, sadly, it seems to come and go in waves. Um, you know, right now it seems to have come up. Um, we had a similar rise last year around this time, and then things petered out and things calmed down. Um, but, you know, as, as per normal, um, folks want help. Uh, they don't want this to go on, and they want to be in a safe, welcoming community. And I think, by and large, the West End is. Um, but it's challenged right now, no question. And I think COVID and the epidemic, uh, the pandemic, as I, I should say, has been a big part of it, at least in the beginning. Um, And now we've got, seems like, uh, the return of the chronic offenders, uh, people who just go at it and uh, uh, hope they don't get caught. And then um, clearly uh, we can't let this go on. Uh, And we're hearing from business owners as well saying there's not even a fear of getting caught. People are taking blowtorches to these windows. The thefts are occurring within 20 seconds. In other cases, people are walking into grocery stores or other businesses and simply picking up what they want and leaving with with what appears to be no fear of repercussions. Are you hoping perhaps an increased police presence will help change that? Uh, I think, you know, if... If folks know they can run in, break the law, get away, and nobody's going to catch them, of course they're going to do it more often, unfortunately. Um, So, you know, having plainclothes officers out on the street, as we do in the holiday season, for example, on Robson Street, uh, that works because you can act right away when a crime is occurring or act when you see one about to occur. Um, You can't do that if you're only waiting to react and phoning the police and waiting and waiting and then the person's, you know, long gone. Uh, so I, I, I've always supported a more on-the-street, police-walking-the-beat, so-to-speak kind of uh, approach. Uh, it's what works on the Davie Village. It's what works on Denman Street in a highly walkable neighborhood. So uh, having more police out on bikes and walking, I think, is really going to help. And that's what residents tell me they want.
But I should be clear, they also want um, more mental health supports. And so I've been working with the mental health ministry and the health ministry to try and increase the amount of supports, because some of what happens is it's not so much um, crime in, in some cases, it's people having mental health breakdowns. And so we need the appropriate resources to deal with that as well. Uh, because that that also can lead to a sense of not feeling safe in a community when somebody is going through such a traumatic occurrence. Have you noticed yourself walking, being in the neighborhood, especially during the pandemic, have you noticed a change when it comes to uh, crime and the number of people, perhaps you even just see uh, going about your day-to-day business that clearly need mental health supports or need that kind of help? Uh, You know, I think... None of us probably uh, would say that the pandemic hasn't had an impact on our mental health and our community's mental health. Uh, And we do see that on the streets, no question. Um, And I think uh, in a community with a lot of folks living alone, uh, it's even harder because you don't have, if you're locked down, you don't have those other people to turn to. Um, And we've also seen that on the streets because the homeless population, a lot of their community supports were shut down and closed as well. And so they really did get pushed out onto the street in a bigger way, uh, unfortunately. And uh, we saw that impact on their mental health and uh, uh, right there on the street because there was nowhere else to go. Um, Thankfully, that started to change. We've now managed to reopen a lot of those services and get people the help, more of the help they need. But, uh, you know, uh, it's not you can't solve these problems in a day, sadly. Uh, um, And often they're long time coming. So, um, you know, we've. In some ways, some of the problems we're seeing today are an impact of decisions 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, when we didn't see that those people get the help they needed then, and that's just spiraled down and down and down. So hopefully we work upstream to reduce the number of people dealing with these problems, and of course, you've got to work downstream to help those people in that struggle now. Hmm. Do, do you think as well with this deployment of more officers again on foot and on bicycle and the Vancouver Police Department talked a bit about when it did the, the 42-day neighborhood response team last fall and they found a lot of success having more officers on the ground and more visible. Do you think this will also perhaps change or even repair the relationship between some residents and police in that we're talking about a neighborhood when in non-pandemic times has one of the biggest pride parades, has a very strong LGBT, uh, LGBTQ community. Uh, but it wasn't that long ago, we were talking about the fact that police were told they weren't welcome in the parade, they were not allowed to take part. Does this help change that relationship or, or repair that relationship? Uh, I, I'm not sure the two are completely connected, but I, I do know that, uh, you know, residents want to feel safe. And for some of them, uh, you know, and, and where that comes from is different for some. You know, some very much want to talk about the police as a response. Others very much want to talk about mental health workers and uh, community health workers, social workers as the response. And so I think uh, you can't separate one from the other. Uh, And I think it's too easy sometimes to say only one is what's necessary or only the other is what's necessary. Because people do need to be made to feel safe, both those that are getting the help and those that, uh, you know, might be in a, in a crisis and it's got to be done in an appropriate way. So um, I know that conversation is continuing both at the city and provincial level to make sure that we do get to the appropriate response for the appropriate problem. Uh, and I know the police want that. I know mental health workers want that. Um, and I know the community wants that. So um, I guess my focus, again, is on that community safety, um, make sure people 
feel safe when they get the help, when they want the help, and that it's there. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm glad to see we've got this response. Um, it did work last fall. I guess what bugs me sometimes is um, it always works, and then for some reason those resources get redeployed elsewhere, and then we lose that community response until the problem happens again, and then we come up with the same idea which worked before, which is people out on the street, people walking, people talking in a more relationship kind of manner. I, I don't know the number of times now I've been the MLA for the West End for over 12 years now, where we've argued for community policing, we get it, we get people out walking the street, and then three months later, it gets moved into something else, and then a year later, we're asking for the same thing. So I, ju- I just hope it sticks, you know? Right. Um, so you know, like we've got be- a great community. I, I think we need to obviously keep that relationship. That's what the public tells me they want all the time. They want that relationship with a person, not a car just arriving once a crisis has occurred. Um, but folks out there to help make sure we don't have to respond to as many crises because we're dealing with them before they become them. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm all about proactive. Uh, let's, let's find that, that happy balance because I know it's, you don't want to police watching everyone on every corner. You want people to feel safe without needing that. Uh, so we got to work upstream to make sure people have the resources they need to live good lives. Um, but you also need a responsive police service when you need it. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Spencer Chandra Herbert, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jill. Have a good one. Well, let's take a look at what is happening just over the border. Canada's top doctor saying Alberta's COVID-19 response is an example of the kind of consequences a jurisdiction can face if the reopening happens too quickly. Dr. Teresa Tam weighing in on that earlier, telling reporters earlier today, COVID surges can be tamed if provinces act quickly when they happen, but also reminded people that vaccines take time and that other measures are necessary when you see the numbers like we are now seeing in Alberta. Well, let's bring in Jason Tetro, who is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, also a microbiologist and an immunologist. Jason, great to talk to you again. Hey, great to be joining you. Uh, this is more your neck of the woods. So uh, what are your <laughs> thoughts on, on what's happening in Alberta right now? Yeah, nobody wants to be sticking out their neck anymore. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to. Um, look, what's happened is that um, we have a government that really does not like the idea of a vaccine passport. And so what they've had to do is they've had to come up with some very convoluted idea of maintaining the restrictions that we had prior to vaccination except in the case of businesses who take on this idea of showing that, yes, you have been fully vaccinated, therefore you can do things. So an example is a restaurant cannot do dine-in services just like we had before unless they adopt the vaccine passport, which is what we're all calling it, at which point you can then do regular in-dining service. That's really what's happening here. Um, it, it's all in the name of just trying to maintain the fact that you do have a choice to say, I'm not getting vaccinated. And is that measure, and that's a measure we now have here in BC as well, is it more about transmission and keeping transmission down, or is it more about getting the vaccination numbers up? Well, <laughs> so we tried giving uh, a lottery, three lotteries. Uh, that didn't work very well. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the premier was giving $100 to anybody who was going to have a vaccine. That didn't work so well. 
I think they kind of have given up on the vaccine. And so right now what they're trying to do is they're trying to find a way of being able to halt transmission um, in those who are unvaccinated. Now, there's a really interesting thing you have to realize here. Most of the spread is happening in between gatherings that are happening in, in domestic or, or residential environments between people who simply are not vaccinated. So they've taken an extraordinary measure here, and that is across the board, whether you're vaccinated or not, you can only gather in groups of about 10. So that pretty much tells you they're really focusing on transmission. What's really troubling about that is that for those of you who play Dungeons and Dragons out there in Alberta, you can't do it at home. You actually have to go to a, a, a coffee shop or a bar and show that you've been doubly vaccinated, and then you can have your game. Hmm. And, and do you think people will comply? <sighs> no. <laughs> the reason is there's no enforcement. Uh, we, we saw that it took, I think, 12 to 14 months before they started enforcing um, the restrictions that were brought in in April of the previous year. The, the, the questions about enforcement have been asked, and it always comes back to the thing that, well, Alberta Health Services, which is very different from any other province, has the ability to take their public health inspectors and give them the opportunity to call the RCMP, who can then come in and create arrests. And they did it once for a couple of days um, to try and show that, you know, they had teeth. But other than that, there really hasn't been any kind of movement. So I don't expect there to be a, a lot of compliance. We heard yesterday from Premier Jason Kenney. He offered an apology talking about mm -hmm. that decision when it came to peeling back protections. He reintroduced the state of emergency, brought in those public health measures that you've just mentioned. Also, yeah. that's including the vaccine passport as well. Mm -hmm. so what happened? Was it? Can we simplify it to the to fact that the province reopened too quickly? The rates of vaccination weren't high enough, or in your expertise. Mm -hmm. What happened to get Alberta to this point again? A small amino acid change in the spike protein of, of the virus, which created the Delta variant. Um, without that, it would not have created a, a thousand times more virus every time it gets inside of someone. Without that, um, vaccination, even one uh, vaccine dose would have been enough to stop this virus. That one very small change in, in that particular virus led to the catastrophe we're seeing today. Where the government went wrong was they maintained that the models they had done with the previous lineages, the original alpha, beta, whatever, were the ones that we had to adhere by. Even though everybody, including myself, was saying, no, you can't do that because this thing now spreads like the common cold and it's still SARS. And we just had a paper, a preprint actually, released recently uh, in Canada showing that it's up to about 2.5 times more deadly if you happen to not be vaccinated, the Delta over the other lineages. That, that's why we're here. And what about when you are fully vaccinated as far as uh, as far as the protection and, and what we're being mm -hmm. told is, is that, yes, you can still get it, but it won't be as bad. Oh, no, it's, most of the time, actually 85% of the time, as we've been finding out, you're not even going to notice that you even had been, had been exposed to this virus. Um, for those other 15%, the, I guess, 95% of those, so maybe like 12 to 13% um, will just experience mild symptoms. They may not even lose their sense of taste or smell. And then there's a small 
um, very, very small minority who essentially don't have a strong enough immune system. And that's going to lead to uh, moderate to severe infection. Those are the ones that have been recommended for booster shots, those third booster shots that just uh, the news came out the other day. And the reason is, is we want to give them the opportunity to boost their antibody levels so that they can also deal with Delta. Um, and looking at what's happening in Alberta with the, the critical care triage during a pandemic or a disaster, and this is specific to Alberta, is, is that province yeah. at that stage where or looking at whether or not they're going to have to look at, at someone's likelihood of surviving and then deciding who gets treatment? We're about 10 days from that. Um, some will say two weeks, some will say four weeks, but we really are about 10 days from having to do this. Now, Last year, we actually incorporated a system to be able to relieve off the pressure by essentially having uh, arenas act as hospitals uh, for those who didn't need critical care. Um, but unfortunately, we just don't have the staff anymore. We, we just don't have what we call the capacity to be able to do that. And as a result, we now are in a situation where, like I said, in the next 10 days, we may end up at a point where there's so much pressure on our ICUs. You always have to rem- keep some beds open for those heart attacks. You know, uh, we'll, we'll start having to triage whether or not you have an 80% chance of survival over the next year. And if you don't, you may not end up getting a bed. I don't like talking about this. I'm sorry. It's just, it's very, very tough to even conceptualize. It is tough. And it's something that we saw last year and we saw it in European countries. I know we were talking about when Italy and, and parts of Italy were so hard hit. And and I think what's so difficult, uh, difficult about this as well is talking about this now when so many people have worked so hard and we're told if you mm-hmm. do this, we won't be in a scenario like this. I know. And that that really is the big issue, right? Is just we've got so much that we can do, so much that could possibly give us the opportunity. But there is that percentage of people who just simply don't want to do it. And that's why we're here today. And 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 unfortunately, when it happens to be at the government level, then everybody ends up suffering. And and this is where we are in Alberta. Um, you know, we're seeing something similar happening in Saskatchewan as of what the announcements were today. Um, We may see this in Ontario after the election when Doug Ford finally comes out of hiding. So who knows? My guest is Jason Tetro, microbiologist, immunologist, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. We've opened up the phone lines and there are a lot of people hoping to get through. So we will get to as many as we can. Let's go right to Rob in Chilliwack. Do you have a question for Jason? Yeah, hi, Jill. I'm going to try and make it quick. I got a couple. Hey, Jason, quick question. I asked you Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, uh, George Aflac was on. It, out here in British Columbia, where we've been wearing masks, it's supposed to stop, help stop the spread. Not completely, but why are we still having so many cases if people are complying wearing masks? Everywhere I go, people are wearing them. That's question number one. Mm-hmm. Number two with the death. Um, how many people do you suppose in percentage-wise uh, actually have pre-existing conditions? Any idea? Uh, or? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's probably in around the range of 70 to 80 percent based on what I've seen from previous uh, lineages of the COVID. So I don't think that okay. would change too much um, in terms of wh- um, why we're seeing so many people. Um, it really comes down to the fact that everybody is wearing masks in certain environments, um, you know, like Lep Farms down in Abbotsford. Everyone's wearing masks. But as soon as they left, they literally took their masks off. And I was just like, uh, you're still in close contact. So unfortunately, the compliance has really gone down a lot. 
Really? I, which I have not, in all honesty, I have not noticed that at all. Anywhere I walk, anywhere I go into a store, retail, grocery, everybody is wearing a mask. So I, mm-hmm. I'm oh. sorry, but I, I have to question a bit of the legitimacy of all this here. Just one more thing quickly, Jill, I'm sorry, if I could just quickly ask, mm-hmm. why is there such a push also for, for immunization uh, for 11 and under? When they're from zero to 19 years of age, there's been 16 deaths in Canada. Why are we mm-hmm. pushing for this so much? It, it seems it does not seem right. Uh, it's just it's really come down to the fact that we're actually seeing a very small percentage of the population of those individuals being infected at this point. Um, it's the same idea for measles, right? Measles only kills one out of every thousand cases. But as we saw in Madagascar, um, you know, we had 10,000 deaths because there were 100,000 cases, that type of thing. So the fact is, we, we really want to be able to make sure that we're protecting all the age groups. And that's really the reason. What I like is the fact that we've, you know, we're looking at much lower doses for those individuals because they do have very different immune systems than adults. All right, Rob, thanks for those questions. Let's go to Dave in Richmond. Do you have a question? Yes, Jason. Um, We've had 160,000 people roughly um, recovered in BC with natural immunity. Um, So if I have natural Mm -hmm. immunity, why Mm -hmm. do I have to replace my natural antibodies and T cells with an unnatural immunity from a vaccine? Um, and mm-hmm. that's one thing I don't hear about is natural immunity that people who have had it, <laughs> even yeah, uh, there's um, been it, studies out of, sorry, there's been studies out of Israel, even clinic, even Rand Paul has grilled uh, Dr. Fauci on natural immunity and we never hear about it. Oh, I can tell you why, because as soon as alpha came around, um, the natural immunity dropped 66%. Um, and, and with Delta, it's probably down around 88 to 90%. And that means that you will now have 10% efficiency if you had uh, previously been infected. The um, prefusion spike protein of SARS, uh, of the vaccines, of the mRNA vaccines, was actually designed to be able to deal with uh, different types of variants. And that's why the breakthrough rate is only about uh, 12% when it comes to uh, mRNA vaccines, whereas it'll be about 90% if you happen to just rely on an original lineage infection immunity. All right, Dave, thanks for that call and that question. Let's go to Susan in Surrey. Go ahead. Hi. Um, first, uh, sending a virtual hug to our, my amazing, uh, our amazing scientist, Jason, and question for you. <laughs> now, if you have, if you have, when you have COVID, you build antibodies. So if you yeah. are fully vaccinated, you get COVID mm-hmm. after you're fully vaccinated, so you're a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. get, do, does your body build more antibodies or do they use up the antibodies that the vaccine has has provided for you Oh, yeah, no, no, no. You're constantly replenishing the antibodies. It's in your bone marrows and they make it. And there's germinal B cell centers, blah, blah, blah. Lots of immunology you don't want to hear about. But what I can tell you is this. Um, a breakthrough is actually just a matter of numbers, okay? What has happened is that for all the previous lineages before Delta, you had enough antibodies to be able to deal with the virus, so it never actually grew to a level that would cause you even symptoms. Delta, because it can um, multiply up to a thousand times faster, it literally becomes a matter of um, of a race between your antibodies and, and the virus. And only 12 or 15% of the time, the virus wins. The, the rest of the time, your body makes enough antibodies to be able to take it down. For those people who are in need of more antibodies, that's what the third dose does. All you're doing is you're augmenting the number. And yes, you are changing the, the sort of um, diversity a little bit, 
but it's not necessarily the, the reason that you would want to be getting um, those different types of shots. All right. Thanks for that uh, call. We'll try and get to everybody. We may only have time for one more caller. Mike in Cranbrook, go ahead. Hey, Jason. Um, actually, I don't have a question, but I more wanted to say for a long time, um, I've listened to you on the shows here. And uh, I got to tell you, you are, you are um, w- when, you, when you talk and you explain everything um, to us, um, it, it really brings me a sense of calming. And I feel so much better after I've listened to you talk. So I just, I really wanted to thank you. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> Mike, thanks for that. I was worried that could have gone either way there. I'm glad it went in that direction. Uh, Wayne, we've only got now one now. minute. So if you have one quick question, okay. go ahead. Yeah, I have one quick question was, uh, had Trudeau stopped the flights from India coming in at the end of March? Would we no. be in this mess? Just, no, that it we- would not have stopped it. No, no. All right, Jason, we are right out of time, but thank you again so much. Uh, We'll go, we'll sign with Mike from Cranbrook. Thank you for uh, always being the calming voice and bringing us the science and the explanations. We will talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Virtual hugs to everyone. Thanks for being with us. So we are going to take a few moments now to check in with the Surrey RCMP, getting more information about a strategic enforcement team. It is the Surrey RCMP gang enforcement team and an update on some arrests that have been made as well as seizures of weapons, of money, of drugs in the Newton and Guilford areas. And joining us now to talk more about this is Constable Sarbjeet Sangha, Surrey RCMP. CMP Media Relations Officer. Thanks so much for making the time for us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Can you talk a little bit before we get into this particular round of arrests and what's been seized? When was the the Surrey RCMP gang enforcement team put together and what is the focus of that team? So Surrey gang enforcement team was uh, created a few years back when we had the increase in violence in lower mainland. Uh, And uh, since 2021 in January, the strategic strategic action plan that we created, keeping in mind the gang violence that was increasing, that action plan is still ongoing. And this media release that we have done is just to show that we are still going with that plan and targeting the criminals in our community that are uh, selling drugs and are involved in gangs. Uh, this deals with one week of the targeted enforcement. So we're talking about the time span between August 29th and September 1st. So what exactly was seized and how many arrests were made during that week? So uh, we were talking about five different investigations between these three days. Uh, four of these investigations were uh, drug trafficking investigations where our officers uh, arrested four people and Um, amount of drugs and cash and vehicles were seized. And there was one investigation where we had a catalytic converter um, thief, that's what we said, in our um, media release. So one was a property crime offender that we had arrested. Uh, This person had a catalytic converter in their vehicles and they were stolen. This person was arrested as well as his vehicle was seized. Uh, And we've been hearing about catalytic converter thefts on the rise. So uh, good news, I think, to anybody who's been a victim of that crime or that's worried about that as well. I understand you seized as well several vehicles. That's correct. So there were five different investigations. As I said, four were drug-related and one was property uh, crime-related. We seized five vehicles in these five investigations. What happens to those vehicles? 
So once the members have completed uh, their reports, uh, we send our reports to BC Prosecution Services, and BC Prosecution Services will uh, advise us they will seek a criminal forfeiture for these vehicles. Okay. I understand, too, uh, some creative sewing on the part of one of the people arrested that uh, police found while making this arrest. Uh, The suspect had sewn a special pocket, a special underwear pocket for drugs? Uh, That's correct. And again, this is not something that's uncommon. We have uh, stopped multiple drug traffickers that have hidden drugs in their underwear as well as in their body cavities. So this was sort of the first time we actually seen somebody actually was creative to go to the far lengths of hiding their drugs that they created a special pocket in their underwear to hide the drugs. Hmm. It seems like even a, a special pocket wouldn't be all that much. It wouldn't be too, too difficult to crack that code. Yep, absolutely. You know, our officers are very thorough when they do over the search uh, during the investigations uh, and uh This type of uh, drugs, you know, when you have large amounts hidden on you, they will not be unseen. Um, At this point, from what I understand, that these are five ongoing investigations, there have been no charges laid. How confident are you that something like this, that these arrests will lead to charges, that there will actually be repercussions for these actions? I'm very confident that uh, these will lead to at least our part as police officer is to put the evidence together and we let the Crown Council decide on whether they will lay the charges. Our investigations are thorough and our officers will uh, complete the packages and send them to BC Prosecution Services. Because we've been talking a lot as well about the increase in property crimes in Vancouver and how Vancouver police are now deploying officers to do more foot patrols and bike patrols to have a better presence and to be there when these crimes take place. But even yesterday, an arrest was made on somebody that had a BC-wide warrant for theft. This person had weapons, had drugs on them, was was arrested for smashing a window with a hammer. Uh, The public, I think, gets a bit frustrated when seeing these things, and it sounds Sounds great that these arrests have been made, these things have been seized, but if there aren't charges and there aren't penalties put in place, it does seem like it's not really making anyone any safer. And I absolutely understand the public's concern. Um, as police officers, we do the job is to make the public safe. We are out there. We're looking at people who are committing these crimes. We are gathering the evidence. And when we do investigation, we do them thoroughly that when we do present that package to BC Prosecution Services, that the charges are laid and these people are put behind bars. Um, one of the other the other parts of these arrests that that kind of stuck out uh, as seeming it's, it's like something out of a show almost. I understand getting back to the catalytic converters that uh, the theft of those was it one of the the people being arrested actually inadvertently showed the arresting officer pictures. And that is correct. And that's as part of uh, when members are, you know, doing their questioning with the person, trying to find out, uh, you know, where did these catalytic converters come from? Uh, during that questioning, when the members were speaking with this person, they tried to show um, uh, something to the officers on their phone. When officers saw that, they immediately stopped them and obviously read them their charter rights because they were actually showing them the evidence that this person actually had stolen them. So evidence, uh, not was it pictures of the, the catalytic converters or actually evidence of the theft? Evidence of the theft. Is that strange? Very strange, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, what happens with these investigations now? 
So, uh, as I uh, mentioned before, our officers will write up their reports, and usually with drug investigation takes a little bit more time because they will have to send these drugs to the lab to get the analysis certificates done, and uh, then they will uh, complete the report and send it to the BC Prosecution Services for charge approval. All right. We will leave it there for today. Constable Sarbjeet Sangha, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you so much.